Well, as I was preparing for this morning, um, I realized that we moved up here. My wife, Jordan, and I were both uh, raised in North Carolina, and we moved up here a year ago yesterday. So we've survived a year in Pennsylvania. We, were, we high-fived about it on the way in this morning. Well, we're glad to be here. We're glad to be part of Trinity, and um, I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach God's Word. Before we get into our text, uh, you might notice the subtitle, under Blessed are the Forgiven, a mass skill of David. We're not entirely sure what this means, but it's probably a term that indicates that this is a teaching text. Now remember, the Psalms are a teaching, uh, excuse me, the Psalms are all songs. Uh, They're written, they were written to be sung originally. So Psalm 32 is a song of instruction. David's trying to teach us from his own experience. And this is one of the things that I really appreciate about the Bible. It knows us. It knows what it's like to be human. It knows the deceitfulness that's in our hearts, the problems that we have to face out in the world in which we live. It knows that we've all got messy lives that are made up of stories that sometimes we'd rather forget, or at least we'd rather people not see. And David's life isn't any different. Psalm 32 is probably written in the same context of Psalm 51, that great penitential psalm. And that's David's life after an affair and a hit job. How did he end up here? You can read some of the historical books uh, to get the history of God's people, the story of God's people. And in 1 and 2 Samuel, we get a lot of the story of David's life. So in 2 Samuel, David is ruling as the king God has given Israel. He's God's man to lead. But... He's only a man. He gets a little too big for his britches, and he gets lazy. So in 2 Samuel 11, he sends his men out to fight by themselves. And this is something that kings of his day didn't do. They went out with their men to lead them in battle. So David's back in Jerusalem, and while his men are fighting, he sees this beautiful woman on a rooftop. He has his men go and get this woman, and he cheats on his wife with her. This woman, Bathsheba, who I mentioned wasn't David's wife. In fact, she's married to a guy that David sent out to fight on his own. Well, Bathsheba comes back to David and she says, hey, I'm pregnant. So David has one of his men go and send Bathsheba's husband Uriah out to the front line and then pull everybody else back so that Uriah gets killed. So David, this king that God has given to Israel, gets a woman pregnant out of wedlock and then deliberately sends her husband to his death. Later on, uh, some, some scholars say up to a year later, Nathan, one of David's advisors and a prophet from God, comes to David and confronts him. And up to this point, David hasn't done anything with his sin. He's just kind of been sitting under it, brooding with it, living with it on his own. He hasn't confessed it to God. And this is what happens in 2 Samuel 11. David said to Nathan, after he's been confronted, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So this guy, David, this man chosen of God, whose sin has tried to cover it up with murder, sinning again, has lived with this sin, finally confesses his sin only after being confronted. This is the guy who's talking to us about confession and forgiveness. This is the author of our text this morning. 
So if your soul feels like David's did before he confessed, dried up and crushed under this burden, it might just be that you are living under the stresses of unconfessed sin. And it's probably good for you to get that taken care of. So a quick note, condemnation and conviction aren't the same thing. Condemnation is vague, it's hateful, and it's hopeless. It tries to pull you away from God, back down into your sin, so you try to deal with it, you try to deal with it, and you can't get it done. Conviction points out a specific sin. It's helpful and, it lo- and it's loving because it, it points you back to God, away from your sin, back to God, and it's hopeful because in God there is hope. So condemnation and conviction aren't the same thing. And if you want to read more about it, I can give you the name of a really helpful, concise article later on today. All right, so if you feel God's hand of conviction on you and you don't know what to do, that's good because the Bible knows us. It knows what we need, and what we need is life with God. So this is what David is telling us this morning. Confess your sin to God because he will forgive you, and it's blessed to be forgiven. Confess your sin to God because he will forgive you, and it is blessed to be forgiven. First, this morning, we're going to look about what David says about life and sin. What happened when he didn't confess his sin? Then, we're going to see how David describes the life of confession. And finally, we'll consider what David's words mean for us. So before we see what David says about life and sin, a disclaimer. We're going to be talking a lot this morning about sin, about sin in our own life, what we should do with it, what God says about it. And I am not trying to be a Bible thumper. It's in our text, so we're going to talk about it. And our text is wonderfully hopeful. So don't check out because we're talking about sin. We've got to be able to see the messiness of our sin before we see the beauty of what God does about it. All right, so life and sin. David is following up his opening declaration in verses 1 and 2 with a personal story that illustrates his point. And maybe you haven't had an affair and committed murder, and we're not here to compare our sin with David this morning. But I don't think any of us lack a story like that. We all know that feeling of sinning against God and what happens later. At a minimum, it's a nagging feeling in the back of your head that you've disobeyed God. Maybe it's that you can't concentrate on your work because that sin keeps coming up in your head again and again. Maybe you're racked with feelings of guilt about how you've talked to that person or how you responded. You want to make up for it, but you can't. You know you can't. Maybe you've sinned and you're trying to justify it, but you can't come up with a reason that sounds good enough, that's really convincing. Maybe this morning you're stuck in a sinful habit and you know that you'd rather be anywhere but here. Talking about God, being around people that smile, being around people that talk about God, because you know that when you see your life, you're not seeing the life that God has told you to live. You'd rather just ignore the problem. And you see, we've been created in the image of God. We know when we've done something wrong. It's in our, it's in our, our, our imago dei. It's in the image of God that's in us. If we keep on living without confessing our sin and repenting of it, we're going to start to waste away. Last summer, I was refereeing a soccer tournament in North Carolina. Um, and one thing you should know about summer in North Carolina is that it's kind of like winter in Pennsylvania. It's too long, and it's too hot to be out in. It's just too miserable. Well, I was there for four days, and by day, like, one and a half, I was wasting away. I didn't sprint as fast. I couldn't concentrate 
on the games. My skin was like fuchsia because no amount of sunscreen can keep you safe for that long in the sun. So by the end of the tournament, it was all I could do to get home, get out of my car, and flop on the couch. I just couldn't move. Everything hurt. And after a few days of lying on the couch and not doing anything or covering, I started to, to be able to move. I can now run again, which is nice. I couldn't on that Tuesday morning. But the same's not so for us in our sin. We're not going to recover. The misery that the North Carolina sun caused me caused you if you were out in Pennsylvania last week. It doesn't have anything on living in the weight of unconfessed sin. An unrepentant heart, you see, it changes us down to our very bones. The things that are sturdiest about us are affected. If we don't confess, we keep wasting away, eventually unto death and hell. And that's what David's talking about. So if you feel like you're wasting away, take note. If you don't, your strength will continue to dry up, and you'll continue to suffer. So notice what David says at the beginning of verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For when I kept silent. Silence is sin's breeding ground. Satan wants you to sin in secret, and he wants you to keep your sin a secret. Because, right, nobody could have possibly done what you've done. Nobody could have possibly been tempted and fallen in the way that you fell. Nobody could imagine what you've done. Friends, these are lies from the pits of hell. God's word provides us with two great truths to combat these lies. First, Ecclesiastes tells us that there's nothing new under the sun. You see, your sin isn't that new and it's not that special. Other people have sinned like you and are struggling like you. You're not going to surprise God somehow if you confess your sin to him. And second, we have a Savior who was tempted in every way, just like us, and didn't sin. Our King Jesus faced sin, he conquered sin, and he can sympathize with us in our temptation to sin. So you're not alone as you face sin. One commentator says this, he says that keeping quiet is not a mark of Old Testament, or in our case, New Testament piety. Piety makes a noise, either in lament and prayer, or in thanksgiving and praise. Friends, silence is it's sin's breeding ground. It's where it thrives. So don't stay silent about your sin. David finally wises up to this. He's been wasting away. He gets confronted, and he finally confesses. And confession is, most basically, acknowledging our sin to God. He gives us three words to describe what he does. First, he acknowledges his sin to God. He calls it what he is. He owns up to it. Second, he doesn't try to cover it up. He doesn't try to hide behind his circumstances or the other person. And finally, he just confesses his sin to the Lord. He makes a full and whole confession, and then what? And then God forgives him. Our definition of forgiveness this morning will be the choice not to count someone's wrong against them anymore. So, David confesses his sin to God, and then the God of the universe doesn't hold him against him anymore. He forgives David. Now, as a church music guy, I should probably point out that there's a musical term in our text, and it's probably all the way over to the right, or your right, in your columns, in your Bible, and it's Selah. We're not exactly sure what the term means, but given how it's used, it probably indicates a spot for a pause, or a musical break. 
essentially it's a, it's, a, it's a spot to break for emphasis. So David uses them three times in the psalm, and they're all in really specific places. And many of the songs we do, we sing, do the same thing, right? We'll have a verse, and then a chorus, and then an instrumental break. And a lot of us, myself included, just kind of stand there during the instrumental, like, okay, this is cool, they're playing, uh, what are the next words going to be? I know because I'm looking at you while you're doing it, okay? But I think that we can do something better with those moments. I think that we can make use of the Selah moments in our songs. We can take time to reflect about what we've just said, what we've just sung, and what it means for us. Do you really believe it? Think to yourself during the instrumental, do you need to repent because of what you just said? What's it going to mean for you on Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning when all you want to do is take a nap? Verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Take it in, David, saying, I didn't confess and it was bad. It didn't go well for me. How do you need to confess? What is unconfessed sin doing to you? Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said... I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. I didn't confess, and now I have confessed, and God forgave me, David says. Well, have you confessed? Do you know what it's like to not have to keep trying to make up from all of your failures? Have you experienced God's forgiveness? So look out for the sailors in the psalms. They're there for a reason. Try to find out what they're there for. Try to find out what the psalmist wants you to pause on. And try to do the same thing in our our instrumentals. See what God's trying to accomplish through the words that we're singing to each other. All right, back to the text. So with this forgiveness in mind, God forgives the iniquity of David's sins. David gives instructions for the life of confession. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. What's he getting at when he says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer at a time where, it, where you may be found? Well, I think this is David's version of a good old-fashioned altar call. He has made his point, and now he's saying, respond. He's saying, Take care of your business with God and do it now. If God's hand is heavy upon you and convicting you of your sin, don't ignore it. Addressing God's people, writing this song to them, he's saying, I've been where you are. I know what you're feeling and God will forgive you. I know he will forgive you if you confess your sin. Do it while you can because you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. You don't know what the ride home will bring. So he goes on to describe the blessed life of confession. And instead of lamenting the conviction of God upon you, when you've confessed, you say to God, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. There it is. Pause. Take it in. The life of confession is the life of communion with God. It's life as it was meant to be. Instead of being weighed down by the discipline of the Lord, 
You can say, God is my hiding place. It's like a kid who has just gotten spanked to be disciplined, who is being now hugged by his dad. That kid will tell you that the hug is better than the discipline. The life of confession is the life of communion with God. It's life like we're supposed to live it. So going on, in verses 8 and 9, it might confuse me a little bit about who's talking exactly. We go to the first person. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. So it might be that God is breaking through, talking directly to his people. It might be that David is just talking directly to his people in this, these two verses. But regardless of who it is that's speaking, I think the main point of verses 8 and 9 is this. Don't be dumb. I'm the youngest of five kids, and I have a lot of parental figures. So growing up, I would be saying this or that, talking about a problem that I faced and what I was going to do about it. And a sibling would lovingly, sometimes, say to me, hey, Scott, don't be dumb. And the idea, the subtext of that was always, you know what you should do. You know that what you want to do isn't going to turn out well, so don't do it. We've been given commandments from God, and we know what we ought to do. So, person who is godly, who's confessed your sin, heed the wise counsel of the Lord and obey it. God has created us, and he knows what's best for us. Don't be dumb. Finally, in, verses, in verse 10, David reiterates the difference between the life of sin and the life of confession. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here's his final exhortation. He's saying, guys, sin is not worth it. Sin will never deliver. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Our God is faithful to his promises. He's steadfast in his love for us. Therefore, verse 11 Those who are living the life of confession can rejoice and be glad in the Lord. So, what does David want us to do? Confess your sin, because God will forgive you. That's the first half of our big idea this morning. Confess your sin, because God will forgive you. Heed the heavy hand of God upon you now, if it's there, and confess. That's the first half. The second, we've already mentioned it. It is blessed to be forgiven. So some translators will render this phrase as it's good to be forgiven. Happy is the man who is forgiven. Well, the gist of the term is that it's, it's a good thing to be forgiven. It is what's good for us. It's what's best for us. The forgiven life is the good life. It's life like we're meant to live it. So going back to verses 1 and 2, we can see why it's blessed to be forgiven. Verse 1, David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So in two verses, David uses three words to talk about sin. He says transgression, sin, and iniquity. And each of these looks at our sin from a different angle. It gets at a different aspect of our rejection of God. And that's what 
sin is. Justin said this morning, it's rebellion. It's rejecting God and what he says, and it's doing what we want to do instead. So the word transgression refers to this rebellion. It gets at the part of our disobedience where we reject God and we turn and do what we want to do. The second word, sin, describes our relationship to God's law. It gets at the idea of missing a mark or falling short of a standard. And finally, the word iniquity describes the effect that sin has on us. It makes us dirty. It stains us before our holy God. But God doesn't leave us there. And neither does David. He goes on to give us three words to describe what happens when we confess our sin to God. Those words are forgiveness, covering, and counting. First, your transgressions are forgiven. Remember, that's the choice to look at what somebody's done in all of its dirtiness and all of its evil and to not hold it against them anymore. When we forgive each other, we make that choice. We try to, we try to put it to the side, not let it inhibit our relationship anymore. Well, God is holy, and because he's so holy, he can't just choose to forget about it. There has to be some sort of sacrifice to pay the price of sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, and that price of death has got to be paid. And this is where we come to sin being covered. In the Old Testament, in, in David's life, sin was covered by the sacrifice of an animal. The animal's blood was thrown up against the altar time after time as a sacrifice for sin. The animal died to pay the price that the person should have, and in doing so, the person's relationship with God was restored. Well, at least for the time being, because David's people, David and Israel, kept sinning again and again. So in saying that it's blessed to have your sin covered, David is trusting that God will accept the sacrifices of his people and will be faithful to his promises to forgive. So Israel sins again and again. Sacrifices are thrown against the altar again and again and again, but then Jesus comes on the scene. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9 that Jesus entered into heaven once for all. Later on in that chapter, he says that Christ entered into heaven and he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what does that mean? It means that All of us who trust that Jesus is Lord and that he died on the cross and rose again for for us, our sins can be covered by the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. God accepts the sacrifice of his son to cover our iniquity. And it's in this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that God counts our sin to Jesus' account and Jesus' righteousness to ours. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's kind of like David's altar call earlier on. Be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him sin to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God sent his righteous son to be sin so that we who are sinful might be righteous sons and daughters of our creator, God. 
So it's blessed to be forgiven because we're living life as it's meant to be. And it's blessed to be forgiven because forever our sin is covered by the blood of Christ. We will live now and forever with the God who created us. So it's good to be forgiven. It's good for us now. It's good for us into eternity. And we should confess our sin because God will forgive us. I think there are at least three takeaways for us this morning. First of all, confess your sin and do it now. If you're here today and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. And I don't think you're here by mistake. Don't think it's an accident. If you're here and you haven't confessed that Jesus is Lord and you trust in him to save you from your sin, do it. Do it now. If you aren't sold on the claims of Christianity, think about how your worldview deals with iniquity, deals with transgression, the wrong that you and other people do. The God of of the Bible, the true and living God, he offers you redemption through his son. So live the life that God has meant you to live. Confess your sin if you have not already. If you felt God's hand heavy upon you, confess it. There's no sin that God won't forgive, and there's no iniquity that the blood of Christ can't cover. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, Martin Luther has said that God means for all of our life to be one of repentance. We're going to keep sinning again and again until we're glorified and with Christ, so we keep confessing. We don't confess to be forgiven and saved over and over and over. No, we confess so that we can come back into our hiding place. So that we can come back to be surrounded with shouts of deliverance and live life as we're meant to live it with God. So that we can hate our sin more. So, confess your sin, friends, and do it now. Parents, are you quick to get angry with your kids? Kids in here, third and fifth graders. Do you disobey your parents or lie to them? Do you gossip often? Or are you jealous of that really sweet thing that your neighbor has because you want it and your life would definitely be better if you had it? Is the thing that makes you the happiest not obeying God and keeping his commandments? Well, if any of this is true, leave your sin behind. Come to Jesus. He knows what's best for you. He offers you the life as it's meant to be. So confess your sin to God because he will forgive you. Well, hold up, Scott. You don't know me. I've, I've been in this place before. You don't know me. You don't know how bad my sin is. You don't know what confessing it would do to me and to those that I love. It would ruin us. Well, let's remember back to David's confession that I read earlier. His sin cost him the life of his son. His confession to God didn't negate the consequences of his actions. But it's still this David, this man, who says that it's blessed to be forgiven. You see, it's better to have God as your hiding place than the one that you're trying to hide from. There might be temporal consequences for your sin that you've got to work through after confession. But it is better to have God as your hiding place than the one you're trying to hide from. So confess your sin if you have not already. If you're living with sin today, confess it. God will forgive you. And the second point flows from the first. 
obey the Lord. Once you've confessed and been forgiven, obey the laws of the Lord. I just mentioned that Luther said that all of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. Well, repentance is that place where confession and obedience meet. Eugene Peterson, a well-known author and pastor, says that repentance is the biblical word describing the no we say to the world's lies and the yes we say to God's truth. So we say no to the world's lies and we say yes to God's truth because it's given for our good. And notice what David says in verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Repentant sinners can be honest about who we are. We don't have to try to erect walls that look perfect. We don't have to act like we aren't sinners. We embrace the salvation that Christ has ensured for us once for all. And day by day, moment by moment, we seek to fight against our flesh and obey the Lord. We do it knowing that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us and empowers obedience in us. So the one who's created us has told us how we should live. Don't be like the horse or the mule that has to have his hand held each step of the way to get from point A to point B. Obey the laws of the Lord. And finally, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, I've got to be honest with you, or at least I should be honest with you. Before John and I talked through this uh, sermon earlier on in the week, this is where I stopped. Um, I gave a, 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 a line about the surety that we have in Christ, and then I said, hey, rejoice about it. And I wrapped up. John went ahead and ruined things. Thank you. He mentioned in passing that I should say a little bit more about rejoicing, say a little bit more about gladness. And as I sat down to do that, to add it in, I realized I was kind of in trouble. Because, you see, I'm not often that joyful of a person. When I sat down to define joy at the beginning, I couldn't really do it. When I started to do some digging, I found some conflicting signals, some mixed messages. Some places said that joy is a good feeling in the soul. Others said the opposite. Joy isn't just some feeling. Well, when we look at God's word, it's given to us as an imperative oftentimes. Paul does it in the New Testament. David does it here. It's a command for all Christians. So I came across a definition that said that joy is a state of delight and well-being that results from knowing and serving God. Joy is a state of delight and well-being that results from knowing and serving God. This seemed to be getting me closer to where I needed to be. It's not really an emotion. It's a state of being. So David is commanding us to live a certain way in light of the forgiveness that God offers. Live in a state of delight. Live in a state of well-being. Why? Because God forgives. Our God is a God of forgiveness. God offers life as it should be. He offers the blessed life. Jesus has entered into the holy place. He has paid the price for our sin so we can rejoice and his victory, because it's our victory too. Forgiven people can be glad people.
Because Christ is our sacrifice, and God is our hiding place. Another author described joy as our animated response to the breakthrough of heaven into earth. Our animated response to the breakthrough of heaven into earth. Heaven is broken through. Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a death he didn't deserve. He was buried. He rose again, and he's reigning on high. Those who have confessed their sin and experienced God's forgiveness, we live now in the power of Christ. So, what do you look like when you're animated? What do you look like when you're animated? Are you a crier? Do you shout when the Eagles win a game? Crossing the finish line of a race, do you put your hands up because you can finally go sit down? I mean, because you finished the race? Or are you of a different ilk who stands there with your hands in your pocket and the deepest expression of joy that you can muster that comes out of you naturally is just barely a smile, just barely a a glimmer in your eye. Well, it doesn't matter. God has created us in different ways. But however you do it, be animated because heaven has broken through. It's blessed to be forgiven. When we gather together, we can rejoice. And when we're scattered from this place during the week, we can go through our lives delighted because in Christ, heaven has come down to earth. Heaven has broken through. We're going to sing a song at the end of our gathering. And it says this, There's no sacrifice to offer. There's no penance to complete. Freely drink of living water. Without money, come and feast. And we get an opportunity to practice rejoicing, to practice our animated responses in the chorus. It is finished. He has done it. Let your weary heart rejoice. Our redemption is accomplished. Raise a shout with a ragged voice and go bravely into battle, knowing he has won the war. It is finished. Lift your head and weep no more. So we've seen that David, this man with such a complicated and messy story, David says to us, it is blessed to be forgiven. David says to us, confess your sin to God because he will forgive you and it is blessed to be forgiven. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that you know who we really are, that you know what our life here is really like, and that you don't give us short, pithy answers to our problem. God, you have sent Christ to redeem us through his once-for-all sacrifice so that we can live the blessed life with you, that we can be surrounded with shouts of deliverance. And Father, for that we are grateful. So I pray that where there is sin remaining, you would convict us specifically, lovingly, and hopefully so that we can come back as a people into our hiding place that is God. So Father, we're grateful for the redemption you've given us in Christ. And we pray that as we continue on now, he would get the glory. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.